I'll begin with a poem. This is by Joy Harjo. It's the beginning of her newest memoir called Poet Warrior. And it starts, prepare. That first earth gift of breathing opened your body. These lungs, this heart, gave birth to the ability to interact with dreaming. You are a story fed by generations. You carry songs of grief, triumph, thankfulness, and joy. Feel their power as they ascend within you, as you walk, run swiftly, even fly into infinite possibility. Let go that which burdens you. Let go any acts of unkindness or brutality from or against you. Let go that which has burdened your family, your community, your nation, or disturbed your soul. Let go one breath into another. Let go one breath into another. Pray thankfulness for this earth we are, for this becoming we are, for this dreaming we are, for this sunlight touching skin we are, for the cooling of the dark we are. Listen now as earth sheds her skin. Listen as the generations move one with the other to make power. We are bringing in a new story, a new dream. We will be accompanied by ancient songs and will celebrate together. Breathe this new life, assist it as it opens its mouth to breathe. So are you dreaming? Dreaming in poetry? Or are you being dreamed? And if so, by who? Perhaps we are all dreamers in a constant state of forgetfulness, learning to remember again and again and again the truths of who we are. And we wake up sometimes gradually, sometimes all at once, from the small self-centered dreams that have become blueprints we've used to navigate this life. Are you dreaming? This question is both 
destabilizing and empowering. And maybe you've tasted that a little. And I can find myself shying from asking the question. Empowering, for it opens us up to wakefulness. Perhaps a moment of clear seeing. Are you dreaming? And if we allow ourselves to hear the question, it can perhaps unhook us or unwind us from or wake us up to the dream we were caught in. Maybe a moment of reactivity or judgment, maybe a dream of resistance or pain, fear or anxiety. What happens when you bring kind attention to this moment of mind? Can you Just for this moment, let go of the self-centered dream. And you may find that there are many layers to this self-centered dream. There's whatever thought we might be caught in, but then sometimes there's deeper beliefs or habits or just bodily collapsing tension, this reification of me, mine, my thoughts, my dream. Can I let go of the self-centered dream and open to what Dogen Zenji calls the great dream? And maybe there are many layers to that dream. The dream of the earth, the dream of the birds, the dream of the sky, the dream of the present moment. Can I become lucid to my life? That's a a question Sashin is always asking us. This life, right here, right now. Can I become lucid to life as it is. And this is where Sashin and Zazen are so empowering, helping us, freeing us from, or helping us recognize so we can free ourselves from my labels, my interpretations, my judgments, my delusions, and just be be breathed, be sounded, be felt, be embodied. Can I receive this moment exactly as it is? Can I be it as exactly as it is? And perhaps we're also empowered by the vows of the ancestors. I feel that so strongly now that I don't live here and I come back here to do practice. Like there's some way in which we exist in this stream of Buddha Dharma. 
empowered by the vows of the ancestors to come into harmony with life as it is. So that's the empowering piece, which we all like to be empowered. But then it's also destabilizing. And the mind doesn't like that so much, especially the first day of Sashin when we're already destabilized. Yeah, so that's part of this practice. Destabilizing in the sense that we're poking holes into that blueprint we place over reality. We're beginning perhaps to open to the mystery of existence, to the uncertainty of being, to the creativity, the pure creativity of nature, which is like, yeah, creativity. And also like, what? (laughs) You mean I can't predict the next moment? Yes, we are being dreamed forth constantly. And we'll get more into that side of practice as Sashin settles and some of those waves that we've come up with begin to settle. Chosen Roshi used to say, we build our home on a groundless ground. That's part of our Zen trademark. Or maybe our Zen empowerment and we can learn to find stability within instability. To find a ground within uncertainty, a ground within presence. So I recognize as we engage with this inquiry into the dream-like nature of reality, we're playing with fire. Like, almost kind of literally. Almost kind of. (laughs) Uh, So this inquiry has the power to burn away our delusions to leave us naked and open like a newborn babe. And we both want that and don't. To free us from concept and that meaning-making machine that can be such a beautiful capacity we have as a human and also it can deaden us from the direct immediacy of being simply aware. And so in a way, all that is precious to us is given up to this fire. Our most precious beliefs, our most meaningful thoughts, even our favorite songs, consumed by the fire of change, vanishing, gone. All so new life can emerge, new growth allowing our life, our actual life, this shared life, to stream forward in its pure creativity and compassion. There's a phrase that comes to mind for me quite often um, from one of Coleman Barks's translations of Rumi, and it says, we must develop a tenderness towards existence. A tenderness towards existence. This poignantly points to the preciousness of dream practice, to bring grace and tenderness to the ways we dream onto experience. Because if you are paying attention, you're going to see all the ways that the mind 
dreams on top of what's happening, dreams on top of life as it is. The ways we turn experience back onto ourselves, which is such a habit of suffering, and yet it's like a protection mechanism that we've learned maybe it came into this world thinking that's the way to do it or learned through you know challenges that we had throughout our early early years pre-verbal years so we have this way as human beings to turn experience back onto ourselves what Eckhart Tolle calls the me and my predicament mind me and my predicament So perhaps you've noticed some dreams bubbling up in Sashin so far. I noticed that um, my mind under awareness, like when I'm using awareness and actually observing what my mind's up to in this cauldron of awakening that Hogan has coined the term to talk about Sashin, I can see just how ridiculous my thoughts are and yet I believe them. So you might have had thoughts of doubt Am I really cut out for this? These people are a little crazy. Is this a cult? Or what's all this talk of dreams? They're just making Sashim more confusing. I just want to focus on my breath. Or fears and anxieties projected onto others. Like perhaps I upset that person in the cafeteria when I put the creamer back in without noticing that they wanted it. And now they hate me. or all the other fantasies and daydreams that we let run for a little longer, like that old song or nostalgic memory, or the narrative where we are the hero and the sinner simultaneously. It's a juicy one. So can you bring, and this is the practice of the first few days of Sashin and the practice of our whole life of practice. We learn to accept our humanity. So can you bring tenderness, grace, forgiveness, patience to all the parts of you who are still arriving at Sashin, who may never arrive at Sashin, who are still adjusting to the rhythms, the longer periods of sitting, the silence, the asocial environment that is both awkward and so generous. The parts who really want to do it right. That's, I can always see those come up in Sashin. Like, I want to just do Oriyoki right. I just want to chant right. I want to do the forms right. I want to be good. I want to be loved. And the parts of us who like the self-centered dreams and don't want to let them go. The parts that needed to dream in order to survive the traumas and challenges of modern life. Here during Sashin, we have the opportunity, which we don't have maybe as spacious, as much time, Uh, to really welcome these parts of us, to really welcome and love and forgive and be patient with these parts of us. 
I used this analogy earlier this morning of a bear coming out of hibernation. And some of you might be thinking, but isn't Sashin the hibernation? We are, though, disconnecting from the roles and responsibilities that we have in our daily life. And for some of us, that's very taxing, very demanding, and very much a full-on job to to be, to do these things that we do. And we're entering this retreat environment. Over the years that I lived in residency at the monastery, I would often reflect on what is the real world that would come up. Like People would visit and they're like, well, yeah, but you guys don't live in the real world. Or I would catch myself like, oh yeah, like when I go back into the world, because this is somehow separate from the world. We can easily, and this is, this is like actually an, an interesting point, because it's so easy to, to, to reify certain aspects of the self and think they are real, and that this thing that we're doing in practice is is not as real, and it's like we've got it all backwards, actually, in terms of what's really real. So it's so easy to get caught up in this idea of my life, my roles, my responsibility, my relationships, and that we have this part of our mind that's constantly going back into the past and then projecting into the future. And one way that we talk about that in Buddhism is the narrative of the self. It's just like, I used to do this, and this happened to me, and I'm reflecting on this thing that happened 10 minutes ago, and then in two hours, I'm going to go take a shower. And, you know, it does it even in Sashin. It does it throughout our lives. It's like, I did this, going to do that. Did this, going to do that. Did this, going to do that. Now I'm doing this. Yeah, it even talks about what's happening now. And that can really, we can really take that as that's real because it's happening constantly. And Sashin gives us an opportunity to disrupt that. I want to uh, share just just the um, story part of this koan. Book of Serenity, Case 12, Daizong Planting the Fields. This may be familiar to some of you. Daizong asked Shishuan, where do you come from? Shishuan said, from the south. Daizong said, how is Buddhism in the south these days? Shishuan said, there's extensive discussion. Dijong said, how can that compare to me here planting the fields and making rice to eat? Shiswan said, what do you do about the world? So this is the one who's coming from the South. There's extensive discussion about Buddhism. And he's talking to this person who's, who's living at the monastery, cultivating the fields. What do you do about the world? And the one who's at the monastery cultivating the field says, well, what do you call the world? What do you call the world? What do, what do you, what do we call the world? What do you call your 
real life. So Sheen and this is a dream practice can help us clarify the assumptions that we make about ourselves, our life, the world, reality. And part of the genius of Sashin is it helps wake us up as a practice of awakening. It allows us to see or begin to see the habitual ways of thinking and relating the assumptions and predictions that we put on top of reality the ways we create a world of suffering for ourselves, and the ways that we habitually block ourselves from spaciousness, from the constant creativity and flow of life, from the playfulness of life emerging fresh each moment, and the grace that is the nature of mind, our true nature, this life. So many of these habits, and I I can tell just by the way I wrote this talk, you can walk away from this talk thinking, well, habits are bad, and I'm not going to have habits anymore. (laughs) No, it's not that simple. (laughs) But many of these habits, as I've said before, have become blueprints or maps that parts of us laid down early in life to keep us safe. So it's not so easy to just tear them off. It's more of a practice of recognition. Am I believing? Am I following those habits? Or can I regard those habits as just part of the dream? Part of this creativity, this flow of life. And that's the subtle, profound shift. Also, not easy to do, right? Like Hogan and Chosen are still practicing. We all are still practicing after many, many years because it just gets richer. Rumi says, though we seem to be sleeping, there is a spirit that directs the dream that will eventually startle us back to the truth of who we are. That's refreshing. Though we seem to be sleeping, something Something will wake us up. Something within the dream will wake us up and startle us back to the truth of who we are. So sometimes Sashin is startling. You can maybe have experiences already of ways that you have been startled back to the present moment, awakened from the dream the hibernation of life on autopilot or auto-response, and awakening into pure, vivid sensation. Sometimes we need a good startle. So we have, during 16, these like built-in startles. Um, We have the teacher who just randomly picks up the microphone and says something, which occasionally acts as a startle, like, oh, wait, wow, I'm meditating. I like that. Part of me hates it. Um, Then we have this sign in the hallway that says, be aware. Has anyone seen that sign? (laughs) (laughs) You can create signs for yourself at home, folks, on Zoom. And then we have the bells and the bird sounds, which are unpredictable. 
and even the absurdity of our own thoughts. Has anyone ever been startled back to the present moment because you just like realized, whoa, what am I thinking? I'm thinking. <laughs> Last night I was startled. I'm sleeping in the hut and the wind, I just forgot that the wind passes through the window, even if the window's closed. And it felt like someone entered the room. And it was like a beautiful opportunity to practice am I dreaming because I was in my bed kind of half asleep so that's another aspect of this these these startles these triggers they can be an opportunity to come back to that question to ask yourself that question am I dreaming or to say this is a dream and then to investigate this is how we work with a koan or a prompt like this. It's like we put the, the words into this, the pot of our awareness and then see, well, what makes this, a, what would make this a dream? What makes a dream a dream? Taito gave us one hint this morning. He said, notice how, I'm paraphrasing. He said it very lovely, I'm paraphrasing. Notice how sounds shapes, people, colors, thoughts arrive or simply appear, arising with that same freedom and spontaneity of the next moment in a dream. It's one thing I've noticed in my dreams, like they're unpredictable. The next moment arises and sometimes maybe in the dream it's a surprise, but often not, even if it's absurd. And, and it just arises, and it, the next one just arises. And that predictive function of the mind, for most dreams, is a little quieter. You might have dreams that, that that part of the mind is functioning. And then we wake up and they're gone. We may have imprints, emotional responses, but the images, that, that flow of the dream, is gone. Dogen Zenji says, this is one of my favorite Dogen Zenji quotes, moment by moment, a thought appears and disappears without abiding. Moment by moment, and this is my favorite one, the body appears and disappears without abiding. So that's something you can investigate. How does the body appear in this space? As we were doing that body awareness scan or just opening into the different parts of the body, you may have noticed like, oh, wow, my fingertips appeared when you mentioned them, but I didn't know I had them before. Or my tailbone emerged. Or my pinky toe. The body appears. And appears in so many different forms. And that's something else you can notice in Sashin. Sometimes we can get fixated on, oh, the body should feel a certain way. The body is constantly appearing in all these different manifestations. And to open to the teachings of the dreamlike nature of reality, like every part of this can be questioned or inquired into. 
Well, what is a dream? And there's so many different ways we experience dream in, in the night. For some of us, night dreams may feel just like a mash of feelings and emotions and tangled images, and we wake up feeling like, what just happened? Or it feels opaque or kind of gray, shadowy, uncertain. For other dreams, there might be great energy or the amplification of fears and anxieties turned nightmare. For others, dreams might be a source of great inspiration. You may have a long-standing relationship with your dreams. They may offer spiritual nourishment. And maybe at other times, feel just more like detritus from the day. For others, still you might have dreams of clarity or deep purpose, big dreams that seem to reflect insights that are deepening and waking life. These are all different shades of dream. Maybe you regularly have premonitory dreams. Many people do. I um, teach mindfulness and meditation uh, to high, high schoolers, high schoolers and college-age students. And um, sometimes I ask them about their dreams. And over for the teenagers, which are 11 through 17, and especially the younger ones, they often have premonitory dreams and just say it so matter-of-factly. Like, I have dreams and they come true. Like, sometimes it's like five out of seven of them have that. It's pretty amazing. That's a capacity, it's said, that we all have or had. And maybe you regularly have lucid dreams or healing dreams. And of course, there are many kinds of dreams that I didn't mention. Some people have dreams where they visit, their teachers visit them and give them teaching. There's one book that I might share a quote from later on in Sashin called Buddhahood Without Meditation. I always loved that line. I was like, yes, I want that. <laughs> Especially when I like thought of it during Sashin. <laughs> and this person, all of their teachings came through dreams. They met with these great Tibetan teachers during dream and were given teachings about the, the dreamlike nature of reality, the insubstantiality of, of self and world. Very beautiful. So just like states of waking life have various levels of clarity and confusion, the same is true for dreams. Andrew Holacek, longtime dreamer and scholar of dream practice, mentions that for most people, as we practice and clarify our attention through meditation, our dreams get clearer. Even our dreams of confusion can have clarity to them. A certain feeling of anxiety or fear or judgment or insecurity is amplified. And instead of us being like afraid of that, we can be curious about it, perhaps giving us a hint of a practice edge that's something that we need to bring attention to in waking life. And then we can really begin to see sleep as a fertile ground of practice, practicing throughout the 24 hours of the day, something Keith Dauman used to say a lot. 
Dharma practice is so much a movement from reactivity to responsiveness. Shifting from habitual reactions towards our experience in both waking life and dreams to responding with acceptance, compassion, curiosity. So one way that could show up in nighttime dream is, oh, this menacing figure keeps arriving in dreams. Instead of like pushing it away or fighting with it or trying to distract yourself when you wake up, can I meet it with acceptance? Can I bring curiosity to its presence in my dream? Maybe even can I learn to love it and see it as a teacher? What might it be trying to show me? Maybe I actually need to reclaim my anger or step into my power or set a boundary. And similarly in this waking dream, a feeling arises in zazen and the habit to shun it or push it away or exile it arises. And the way to turn into responsiveness is, can I welcome this feeling? Can I breathe into it? Can I even welcome this habit of shunning? Can I bring curiosity and compassion to this part of me, part of my experience, this inner fight that's happening? This is the invitation awareness brings us moving from reactivity to responsiveness, recognizing reactivity and responding more skillfully. We can even bring acceptance, curiosity, and compassion to our reactivity. Nothing is wrong here. All is part. Anything that's arising in your experience during Sashin and all the time we can really see this during Sashin, it's, it's part of your life. So it's not so much about that other person and if they would stop doing, walking really loudly during Kinin or whatever. Um, it's not really about them. It's about, oh, there's reactivity again. Interesting. How often do I judge people for their noises? All is worthy of tenderness. It's not like, oh, now I'm wrong. But it's like, oh, wow. An opportunity to meet myself and my suffering and transform it. Because transformation happens when we meet our suffering with compassion and curiosity. We're changing that relationship. So we're not like reifying our suffering and then we're stuck in suffering. It's like, oh, I can change my relationship. Dogen Zenji says in the opening lines of his fascicle within a dream, expressing the dream, the dream of the Buddhas and ancestors exists before a single thought form arises. The dream of the Buddhas and ancestors exists before a single thought form arises. He also says, when we study this, then roots, stems, branches, leaves, flowers, fruits, as well as radiance and color are all the great dream. Do not regard them as merely dreamy. 
So part of the work during this first couple days of session, which are usually the hardest for those of you that this is your first session, is to begin to align attention with present moment experience. So we are training attention to stay here in this great dream, in the vividness of life happening here, appearing of its own accord. And this in and of itself, this practice of staying present, staying with our experience, takes creativity. It takes effort, especially in the beginning, and it takes patience. We might have an idea of what a calm mind or a settled body looks like and feels like. And it it takes time to really open to that. We often come to Sashin even as residents with a certain momentum of activity, stress, overthinking, anxiety. And it takes time for body and mind to feel safe here, to learn the rhythms of Sashin, to acclimate to the schedule. It takes time for our bodies to get used to the posture, to the room we're in, to the part of the zendo we're in. All of this, like we're, we're animals. It takes time. Some of us are cats too, so it's like really going to take some time. <laughs> and it takes time to settle into these rituals and forms, especially if this is your first time learning them. So it can feel clunky or boring at first to connect with a practice during meditation. The small mind is used to being in control. Our egoic mind is used to being in control, to running the show, to keeping us safe, to being on guard, to being professional, to keep us looking good, and to predicting for potential hurt or upset. It's also used to distracting us when it's bored or doesn't have anything else to do. And it has so many ways of doing that, especially in our modern life. There's the phone, there's social media, there's games, there's constant conversations. So our minds may be used to getting what they want when they want it. And there can be some resistance to sitting still, to following a schedule, and then during meditation to doing a practice. So as I mentioned, and I'll keep coming back to it, compassion and tenderness is so foundational to meeting and shepherding our scared parts. Just think of that bear coming out of hibernation. How scary that must be to come out of being so protected and safe. Even if like we're not that protected and safe by our habit patterns, like there is some protection and safety in them. So I've come to regard, I'm gonna talk a little bit more about the details of, or the nitty gritty of meditation practice. I've come to regard breath practice or sound practice or whatever foundational practice you use to anchor attention in the present moment. Usually it involves using one of the senses. I think of it as giving my mind something to do, right? It's used to doing things. So giving our attention something to do. 
a form to play in. And, and meditation can be playful. It's a way of staying engaged and opening this precious capacity that we have to attend, to be aware. So the Buddha used an analogy of tuning a stringed instrument. And that's like, it's not like a once and done, like we're constantly tuning and tuning is actually the practice, it's the play. It's beautiful in and of itself, it's, it's an art form. Meditation truly is an art form. I've really, I've been thinking about Chosen and Hogan Roshi, just you know, continuing to spend hours a day in meditation practice now for over 50 years. That's like really cultivating that art form and still making new discoveries. So how do we tune our attention? I'll just say a little bit about this. So there, there's an, a spectrum of alertness and relaxation that we can play in. And there's also moving the aperture of awareness from like more tightly focused or, or hyper-focused to more spacious. And usually spacious and relaxation can go together and alertness and tightening go together. But there's some nuance in that. Can relax within a, a very specific focus and you can definitely be alert, very alert in a more spacious awareness. So you think of like we're, we're in a practice of responsiveness with whatever meditation method you're using. So just a couple of examples. And many of you have your own art form already that you're continuing to play in. But this may be helpful for some of you who are newer to Sashin practice. So if attention is scattered, and that might mean there's like too much space that you're giving your attention or lack of form, that can continue to dissipate. For, for most people, dissipate attention. So you don't have a specific practice, and you're sitting there and you're just noticing, oh, the mind is just kind of playing and everything. Or if you have like a light touch to the breath, you're not really engaged with it and you're noticing, oh, like I can't seem like there's just so many thoughts and they're just, it may be helpful and you can try this out to really focus attention, to bring it in and get really interested in the breath or in sound. So what that would look like is in the breath is like, to really focus on all the tiny touches or the particle by particle nature of the breath. To notice where in your body you feel the breath the strongest and bring attention there. To see if you could feel, if you can feel, sometimes we call it the three parts of the breath, so all the touches that make up the inhalation just noticing where you feel that. Do you feel it in the whole of your body or just in the nostrils? And then the turning from the inhalation to when it becomes the exhalation, that's a really kind of exciting part. You can 
can begin to notice when that happens. And then feeling all the touches or sensations or movements that make up the exhalation. And see if you can follow that or ride that breath all the way down to the bottom of the exhalation. So sometimes I imagine that I'm a little bead and I'm riding my breath like it's a wave. I'm just like right on that wave as it goes all the way down to the bottom of the exhalation. And sometimes for some people, there's like a little gap at the bottom of the exhalation. You kind of like uh, relax and then the wave picks back up. So we can be creative. You can notice those, those were actually, that was actually four points of the breath. Inhale, the turning from inhale to exhale, the exhale, and then the turning from exhale to inhale. And this can sharpen attention when we're really getting into the details, can bring more alertness. And then we can even play with like just relaxing on the exhalation, riding that wave down, and then bringing more alertness and details to the inhalation. And then relaxing on the exhalation. So you can play with relaxation and alertness. And similarly with sound, you can notice if your mind is really scattered and you're doing sound practice, it can be helpful perhaps to find like a more constant sound. And sometimes that's toning in your head and using that as something to focus on. Some people, they notice a ringing in their ears or can be tuned into a somewhat constant. This is a very quiet place. So it sometimes can be hard. You have to get very subtle in your listening, which can sometimes allow us to hear sounds that we don't usually hear. So that's, that's if you're feeling more scattered. And you can do that with anything. If you're feeling that your hands, if that's your main practice, or feeling the place where your body makes contact with your seat, you can get into the details in that same way and just get interested. If it feels like you're fighting with attention, sometimes we have too tight of a grip on the breath. Like, I am going to get every single particle of breath. I'm going to touch it all. And we can start fighting with our attention because there's, there's a pain in the body and, and attention wants to go there. Or there's a thought that just keeps coming up and we're like fighting, like, no, no, I'm going to stay with this. And there's a thought. So then sometimes it can be helpful to, to open the breath, like let the breath include thoughts. Let the breath include body sensations. You can still be detailed with it, but you can open it up a little bit. Feel how your whole body moves as you breathe. Or sometimes you use the analogy, breathing out 84,000 pores. So letting your body be spacious. Just bringing in a little more of that quality of spaciousness, however you imagine it. Maybe instead of riding the wave, you feel the breath as a wave in the ocean. So your awareness is the ocean and you feel the wave of the breath as you feel the wave of the knee pain, as you feel a wave of a thought. You're mainly staying with the waves of the breath. But there are these other waves and you're just acknowledging.
And similarly with sound, you can open to the entire soundscape if you notice that there's that fighting. Letting thoughts, feelings, emotions be part of the soundscape. As if you're listening to an avant piece of music. Yes, like your thought can have a tone. You can hear it as tones. And then another way of working with this is just playing with the dial of alertness. So not necessarily changing your practice, but if you notice you're kind of dim, just see it, like imagine that there's an alertness relaxation dial and turning up the alertness. And see if you can turn up the alertness without getting tense. So can you brighten your attention? It took me a long time to, to get this, it's subtle. Can you brighten your attention without straining or pushing or tensing up? And that's that's one I like to play with a lot is like we can get caught in like doing a lot of things. And then I like to remind myself, actually my body is just breathing. And can I let my body breathe me and just relax into that? You can still feel all the details of breath. You can still be very attentive and just take that subtle shift of, oh, but my body is just breathing me. I don't have to do anything. I can feel it. I can be breathed. Our sounds are just happening. I don't have to do anything to make them happen. So before we can really dive into the inquiry of the dreamlike nature of reality without it becoming so destabilizing, we need to be able to just rest in present moment experience and begin to notice as we're doing during this session, um, beginning to notice when we're in dreams of reactivity and when we're present to pure experience or just resting in sensation, the method, the breath, or sound. So this practice takes courage. Especially these first couple of days as we just open this path together. It takes courage to open to the truth of who we are. It takes courage to face the karma that shapes us. It takes courage to let go of some of those self-centered dreams that we recognize. It takes courage to open, to be touched by sound, to feel the breath, to let life be just as it is.
And we all have that. We all have that courage. Or else you wouldn't be here. You would already have left. 